to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Stephen, I am uh, the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. Just want to welcome you today. So glad that all of you are here. Just want to echo what Amy said uh, this morning. There's a uh, there's an old church tradition, and we rent this building. And if I didn't rent this building, we would paint the doors red because I love this old church tradition. Um, the old church tradition was that they would paint the doors red uh, because it was as if you were entering through the blood of Christ. And it was a reminder that in Christ there is no shame, there is no guilt, uh, that our sins have been taken care of. And that the church is the one place in the world that we get to gather together, uh, not needing to prove ourselves, not needing to, to live up to anything, but simply resting in the grace of God. And so I'm just so, so thankful for that and for that reminder that Amy reminded us of at the beginning of the service. Um, and just want to uh, remind you that we, we're just so glad you're here. And so we'd love to connect with you. Again, you can fill out that connection card, drop it in the back. Um, you can also uh, uh, go to our website, coahforesthills.org slash connect if you want to do that digitally, and we'll give you those free gifts. Uh, our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel literally means good news. It means that, uh, that Jesus gave his life for us because we were separated from God because of our sin and that Jesus died in our place so that we can have a new relationship with God, then anyone who is willing to receive that can have that by God's grace. And so we'd love to invite you to receive that if you have not done so. Uh, secondly is, the, is community. Community is the idea that God created us for relationships. And because we were made to be in, in connection with other people, um, he, he created us to be in these, these relationships. And the, the way that we grow most is in relationships centered around Jesus, that God made us for himself and that we grow as people and flourish and thrive when we're connected to other people that way. And then mission. The mission is uh, the idea that the gospel is just too good to keep to ourselves. We tell people good news. We get good news, we tell somebody, right? We do the same thing with the good news of the gospel. We tell other people about what Jesus has done, but then also our lives are shaped by what Jesus has done. And because of that, that's how we, it shapes how we love and serve our neighbors. A couple of announcements before we get, can, uh, get into the word today. Um, if you are new with us today, we'd love to get, uh, get to know you a little bit better. To my left, your right in the chapel, we're going to have a newcomer hangout right after the service. We have a, a small gift for you. And uh, actually, Matt, uh, our worship pastor, he's gonna be in there today to uh, connect with you and uh, let you know more about City on a Hill. Um, I'm gonna be jetting out here in just a little bit after the sermon. Um, I serve as the, the chaplain for the Red Sox. And on Sundays, I, I will usually go do that. Uh, but because of COVID, I have to leave a little earlier than usual because I have to go COVID test every week. And so um, I will not be here for that, but Matt, our worship pastor, will be and would love to connect with you. Um, this morning, we're also having some, um, some ways you can get connected here at Seti in a Hill. One is through a community group. So community groups are groups of uh, about six to 12 adults who get together, uh, study God's word, help each other grow and follow Jesus, uh, care for each other like a family, and then love and serve their neighbors. And so we have signups for those uh, downstairs. Uh, if you came in and saw where the coffee was, over to the left, you'll see a signup sheet for that. If you've not connected to one, groups start this coming week. So we'd love for you to get in on that. And and also, we'd love for, to help you find a place to serve and use your gifts. There are numerous ways that you can serve. You can also sign up at that same table. 
Um, also coming up on Sunday, October 3rd, right after the service, we're gonna have a baptism class. So if you've not taken that step of obedience and you're in following Jesus to be baptized, we'd love to invite you to come discover what baptism is. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're really curious. Um, we, that's a great class to go and learn more about what baptism represents. And then lastly, coming up on um, uh, uh, at the end of October, the 22nd to the 24th, we are having our church retreats. We're getting together with our other uh, City on a Hill churches around Boston for a retreat in New Hampshire. It has been two years since we've done this and we are so excited to go do it. So we'd love for you to get signed up. And if you sign up this week, you can get in on the early bird rate uh, for that. All those events are on our website on the event page. Uh, now, this morning, we are going to continue a series in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, as we started last week, is a letter. It was a letter to the church at Ephesus. And Paul is writing this letter. We see in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 1 that uh, Paul was an apostle, meaning someone he was sent, who was sent by Jesus in order to extend and expand the church, to plant churches, and, 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 and advance the gospel uh, to the known world. And he writes this letter to this church in Ephesus, the church that he started and then left and left a man named Timothy in place of. And he's writing them. And, and, and unlike a lot of Paul's letters where he's kind of like, okay, you guys are getting wild and crazy. There's nothing wild and crazy going on in Ephesus. They're doing a pretty good job, but he wants to give them a vision for what life can look like, a vision for what type of church they can be if the gospel really gets root, if it really gets to the heart. And he gives them this vision and he does so, but in these first, you know, verses uh, three through 14, these 11 verses, um, he does so in kind of this rapid fire praise uh, about how good and how great God is. And, and he really roots it in the idea of every spiritual blessing. He says, God is the giver of every spiritual blessing. And that is the fount and the source from which we can be the church God has called us to be. And so John Stott talking about these 11 verses, as I talked about last week, this is a 202 word run on sentence in Greek. Um, he talks about what this looks like. He says, it's a golden chain of promises. Somebody else said that, um, that uh, this, this, these 11 verses are a kaleidoscope of dazzling light and shifting colors. Another person said, it's like a racehorse running. Someone else said, it's like an overture and an opera. Another said, it's like watching an eagle in flight. What do all of those things have in common? They cause you to awe. Do you remember being a little kid and turning the kaleidoscope and looking at the, you know, at the light and at the shapes and the colors? I mean, I'm like 39 and I'm still awed by that. Um, it, it's, it brings awe. When we, we see something that causes awe in us, it, call, it catches our, it takes our breath away. This section of verses are meant to cause us to awe and wonder at God. They're meant to cause us to say, wow, what a great God we have. And so last week we unpacked the first spiritual blessing that God promises us through the idea that we've been chosen into God's family. We've been elected and adopted into God's family. And when, when the words election and adoption are in the scriptures, they're never meant to scare us, they're meant to assure us. They're meant to remind us that God's past blessing is that he chose us, not because of anything that we would ever do, but because simply because of his graciousness and that he's brought us into his family. That should give us assurance that no matter what we're facing today, God is still good. God is still faithful. He is still our father. And so we have this present reality as the people of God, but we're still learning what it looks like to actually believe that we're loved and chosen and adopted by God. I have now have two teenagers and I'm learning very quickly that teenagers eat a lot. 
They've got sports going on. They walk multiple miles a day to get to school. Um, they, they're doing a ton of work. I have one daughter who's playing midfield and soccer, and you're running about six miles a game. And, and they, they want to eat. And I remember what it's like being a teenager. I just ate all the time. I ate things that weren't even food because I was just hungry. And so I'd go to a friend's house, and, I'd say, and, and their parents would say, you know what? Anything in the refrigerator you can have. And at first I'm like, oh, like anything? And they're like, yeah, anything. So you go to the fridge and you open it up and you grab the jug of the milk and you're kind of looking at them, making sure they actually mean it. And they're like, yes, we actually mean it. And over time, you eventually learn that they actually mean you can receive everything that they're giving you. In the same way, when it comes to the blessings that God has given us, we often don't have confidence and believe that we are truly loved and chosen and adopted. We need assurance. We need to know what gives us grounds for truly believing these things and what gives us grounds for the fact that God shows us the proof that he loves us and brought us into his family is the second blessing we're gonna look at today, and that's redemption. We are redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been saved through what Jesus did for us on the cross, and it is the guarantee of God's faithfulness to us. It's the visible picture and what sealed our inheritance in Christ. And we'll look at that next week. See, Jesus dealt with what separated us from God through the cross. So let's look at what redemption means for us. We're gonna unpack three ideas today. And the first is what we are redeemed from. In verse seven, it says, in him we have redemption. What exactly is redemption? What does redemption mean? Literally, redemption was, the, the word was used for the purchase of a slave. It was to take, pull, not, not to buy a slave, to, but to purchase someone out of slavery. And so this idea of redemption was to take someone who was in bondage, who was enslaved, and to free them. And under the ancient system of slavery that was common to the old world, um, th that you could set a price on someone and redeem them out of that place. And it wasn't just redeeming them uh, from being under control, being under bondage, but actually was about restoring their dignity. It was about restoring their citizenship and their rights. And so for us to get the gravity of the redemption that we see in Christ, we need to understand what we have been redeemed from, what we have been redeemed out of. And this really, the background of this is the nation of Israel. We see this in the nation of Israel, that they were under the bondage to the nation of Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. And they were redeemed out of that bondage, not just from under their control, but from under being dehumanized by them. They were bought, their freedom was bought. They were bought out of a type of slavery. In the same way, we have been redeemed from a type of slavery to our sin. Verse seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Trespasses is another way to say sin. Redemption leads to the forgiveness of our sin. Now, why do we need to be redeemed from sin? Why do we need to be redeemed from our trespasses? Well, there are two reasons. The first reason is sin binds us. It keeps us in bondage. And so we are bent towards sin and it shapes how we live. We are enslaved under sin. The word, the word trespasses has the sense of wandering. Now we've all seen a no trespassing sign, right? We've all wandered past a no trespassing sign because if they don't want you to trespass it there, there's probably something fun behind it, right? At least that's the way I used to think. And so in the same way, we are bent toward trespassing. 
we see the red button we're not supposed to push and we want to push the red button. If you have children and they're not supposed to touch the hot eye, all they want to do is touch the hot eye on the stove. We often think that sin and trespasses are making bad choices, but really those are the fruit of sin, that we have a sinful nature which leads us to making sinful choices. And in the, in all the way back in the garden, in the, in, the, in the creation story that we see through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter one and two and three, we see that Adam and Eve trespassed by rejecting God's one rule. It's been said that in a world full of yeses, Adam and Eve chose the one no. They saw that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said, do not eat of that tree because when you do, you will know good and evil and you will be like me. And so ultimately sin is trespassing where we're not supposed to go. It's any thought or action that's contrary to God's law. And ultimately what it's doing is we're trespassing and we're usurping God and trying to put ourselves in his place. In other words, in the same way that Adam and Eve did, knowing good and evil, they wanted to determine what was good. They wanted to determine what was right. And we do the same. We live for ourselves and we're self-determining and we believe I'm the master of my own destiny. And so what God did in that moment is he did for Adam and Eve and he does the same thing for us. He gives us what we desire. And what we find through the bondage of sin is that it is a weight that we cannot bear. We cannot bear the weight of being our own gods. And when we make something other than God in our life, we make something other than God the center of our life, it just ends up enslaving us. And we have to have it or we're not enough. If I don't get this job or this certain career or live in this certain place, if I don't meet a certain person, then you know what? I'm, I'm just not enough. And that enslaves us. If you give yourself to any sin, it becomes your master. And what sin does is it lies to us and it says, hey, there's another option out there for you. Maybe there's something better. Maybe there's something different but it ends up becoming your master. Ray Orland says, sin offers itself as an option, but it takes over as master. See, when you give yourself to lying, what do you have to do in order to keep the lie? You have to keep lying. The thing about lust is that you just have to keep feeding the monster. Anger has a way of controlling us. And the Bible is clear that we are enslaved to sin. Jesus said this in John chapter eight. He He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We're enslaved by it. But Jesus also said that we need freedom. He said, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came to free us from the bondage of sin. He also came to free us from the penalty of sin. Sin has a penalty. And that penalty is God's judgment. When we put ourselves in the place of God, we end up incurring God's judgment. So imagine tomorrow that you go into work and you decide, I'm gonna move all my boss's stuff out of his or her office and I'm gonna set up shop, right? So you take their world's greatest boss mug they bought themselves and you put it out in the hallway and you start moving pictures and you do all that and you start setting up shop. You put pictures of your family or your mom or your dad. You put your computer and your sticky notes and all that in the office. What's gonna happen eventually? Security is gonna come and they're gonna kindly escort you out of the building because you've gone somewhere that you're not supposed to go. You are going to incur the judgment for your choices. This is how sin works. It incurs a penalty. 
It's an offense against a holy God, and you have to deal with that somehow. It will always end in judgment. And we all try, we all try to deal with that tension because even if you say, you know, I, I'm not religious, I'm not, I'm not a Christian, I really don't believe any of this stuff necessarily, we still try to resolve the tension of our guilt that we know we're due a judgment. We, we are all trying to resolve this idea in our souls and we see this in how we see ourselves. When, when we see that there's something maybe wrong in us or we do something wrong, what do we try to do? We try to outwork our guilt. We think, think, if I can just be nice enough, if I can just give enough money, if I can just do enough community service, if I can just be a hard enough worker, I can tip the scale in my direction to do more good than bad, and I'll finally feel like the guilt goes away. But the problem is we can't ultimately make the guilt go away on our own. I don't know if you ever watched a TV show with like the stereotypical dad and he's, he's neglectful of the kids and the mom is talking to the dad and saying, you're never around, you're, you know, you're not loving your kids well. What does the dad always say? Do you know how hard I work for this family? He doesn't say, do you remember all the times that I took the kids to go throw the ball or that I sat on the floor and played? He says, do you know how hard I work for this family? And in the same way, we try to assuage our guilt that way by saying, do you know how much I do? How much I give? And this is why we need redemption because this is a debt and a weight that we cannot pay. It's like a running tab that no matter what you do, no matter how much you put toward it, it just keeps growing. And so we have this massive problem because our sin is an offense against a holy and perfect and infinite God. And it requires a payment of holy and infinite worth that we just don't have. Sin is a massive problem. It's our biggest problem. But as John Anya Chekwa says, God is your biggest problem's biggest problem. He paid what you could not pay. And, and the one who was offended absorbed our debt. He, he canceled our debt, that in him we are redeemed and we have the forgiveness of sins. He set us free and it is freely given, it's freely received, but it came at a cost to God. The second idea is what we are redeemed by. There's this key phrase between redemption and forgiveness. And that phrase is through his blood. In order to get to forgiveness, the redemption price has to be paid. Redemption requires a price in order to forgive the debt. And that payment was the blood of Jesus. Now, why would it need to be blood? Like, why couldn't it have been money? Why couldn't it have been, you know, a list of, of rules that you or I could, could complete in order to, to be right with God? Why did it need to be blood? Well, Hebrews 9 says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Blood is the requirement to pay for sin. Because in the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, the way that sin was satisfied was through the shedding of blood. And the way that God did this, and this is gracious, instead of you or I paying for our sins, he provided a substitute. An animal would be provided in the place of a person and that animal would pay for, with their blood, the sins of the person. But what we see about the Old Testament system is that it was only temporary. It was pointing forward to a better sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice. And that's why Hebrews 10 says that Jesus came as a once and for all payment for sin, meaning that there's no more work needed. 
There's no further offering that is needed in order to pay for our sins. Jesus is the payment through his blood to forgive us of our sins. Now, there are, lo- there are lots of opinions about Jesus. I- I've not really met anyone who has a problem with Jesus. It's like the old show, Everybody Loves Chris. Everybody loves Jesus. But what I've found is that for most of us, we love our idea of Jesus. We love a part of Jesus. And very rarely do we take Jesus as his whole. We, we may like the example of Jesus. We look at Jesus and think he's a good teacher. We see that Jesus cared about the poor and it was about equity and justice but we have to take all of Jesus. And that includes the claims that he made that he came to do the Father's will, that he came and he believed he would die. As John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. We have to deal with the fact that Jesus came and died to forgive sinners. That he died standing in our place and that his blood is the payment that sets us free from sin. Now, the question is, why would anyone do that? Why would God give his very own son? The end of verse seven tells us, according to the riches of his grace, that God is that gracious. God's grace is his goodness to those, even though, to us, even though we don't deserve it. Grace is sort of the opposite of karma. Now, I don't know how many of you would, are, are, you know, followed Eastern religion. I don't even think you have to follow Eastern religion in order to kind of see how karma kind of flows into our lives. But the idea of karma is we all, our Western culture is kind of bought into this idea that you really get what you deserve. You, you get what you deserve. If you're a good person, good things will happen to you. If you're a bad person, bad things will happen to you. So if something bad's happening, it's the result of some sort of poor past choice. But the problem is, is that when you play that out, it means that we really should never feel bad when something bad happens. So if someone's sick and in the hospital, it's because of something they did in this life or a past life. We don't believe in past life. We believe this is the life we've been given. It, it, we, it, if some, some sort of injustice happens in the world, we shouldn't really worry about it because ultimately that, that, was, that was what someone deserved. We shouldn't care about the poor. And the idea of suffering under, the, idea, uh, under the, the system of karma is that suffering is the way that you pay for your past decisions. Grace says that Jesus paid for all of that. And what it means because of grace is that the absolute worst can get in because none of us are deserving. None of us deserve God's grace, but yet God freely gives it to us. And he so freely gives it to us, he doesn't just give us a little bit of grace. Verse eight says, he lavished it upon us. He poured it out on us. It's like if you've got like an old Italian grandma who's just pouring more pasta and more sauce on your plate and stuffing you full, that is what God is doing with his grace. Just when you feel like you are about to pop, he gives you more. And what are the implications of that? It means that there is no person who's too bad for God to forgive. There's no person. And you might be even thinking right now, as I said, that you don't know what I've done. But Jesus does, and he still died for you. That's grace. It means there's no person so good that you don't need God's grace because if the standard is the complete and full forgiveness of your sins, you cannot work that. It means there's no sin that Jesus and his work cannot cover. So it could be the billionth time you've sinned or it could be the most egregious and vile sin you could possibly imagine. God lavished his grace upon us by giving us his son. And anyone who's humble enough to receive that can have it. 
And in God lavishing his love and his grace upon us, it's not like he did this haphazardly. It's not like he didn't consider what the cost was. It says that he did so in verse eight, in all wisdom and insight. In other words, Jesus counted the cost. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus talks about how if we're gonna follow him, we have to count the cost. And he, he describes this kind of how a contractor would think of the cost of building a building. If you're gonna build a building in Boston, you really gotta consider the cost because there are a lot of costs involved with building something in the city of Boston. In the same way, he's, telling, he's saying, if you're going to follow me, you need to consider the cost. I imagine in the, in the same way, Jesus considered the cost of what it would take to pay for our sin. He thought through the implications, the, the pain, the suffering, the wrath that he would endure. Jesus knew what he was getting into when he died for you. So we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and, and because of God's grace. And we've, this has happened for a purpose. The last thing we see is what we are redeemed for. So what we're saved for is as important as what we are saved from. We've been sa saved from our sin for something so much better. There's this guy named Richard Koken who wrote a book called Ephesians for You. And it's this tiny little uh, book. I think it's a great, it would actually be a great companion as we go through this, this series over the uh, next couple of months. And, uh, and he talks about how one of the things that we, our, our salvation is for is for enjoying the freedom that Jesus gives us. It says that Jesus set us free. He died in order to set us free. For freedom, he has set us free. And he says a few things that we enjoy are freedom from fear. We are redeemed so that we do not have to fear. Meaning that in Christ, there's nothing that you or I need to fear. Meaning that when our life seems out of control, we do not have to fear because we have a great God. When, when our, our life seems overwhelming and it seems like we're not sure what's coming around the corner, we have a God who is glorious. When we sin again, as we've talked about, we don't have to fear because we have a God who is gracious to us. And when we think we are missing out and there's something better around the corner, we have a God who satisfies our soul because he's good. And if we're honest, most of us are deathly afraid that those things aren't true. We are deathly afraid that we don't measure up and that we're not secure and that God doesn't have us in his hands. But the promise that Jesus seals with his blood is that if he chose you and he brought you into his family and he died for you, then you are secure and he's not letting go of you. You do not have to fear. We also enjoy freedom from guilt. The forgiveness of sin means that the debt has been completely paid in Christ. Now, when we think about guilt, you and I typically think about guilty feelings. But also in the Bible, it's also about the standing we have before God. And what oftentimes is we understand the weight of our guilt, which makes us feel guilty. And we know the struggle. We know, we know the cycle. We sin, we mess up, and we just kind of keep doing it. And if you are a follower of Jesus, it's easy for you to think, you know what? man, I keep doing this. Am I really saved? I, I, keep, I keep messing up. I mean, does God really love me? Am I really a Christian? Is he really with me? Because if I was truly a Christian and God was really with me, maybe I, I, I probably wouldn't keep doing this. But know that that struggle you feel in your soul, you're not alone. That's a struggle that's 2,000 years old. And Paul, the guy who wrote this book, wrote the very same thing to the Romans. I love, here's the thing I love about Paul. Paul has nothing to hide. He lays all his laundry out for everybody to see. If you read his letters, he talks about his past. He doesn't pretty up his resume. He's not lying about it. He says, here's how messed up I was. And here's what Jesus has done for me. 
And in fact, in Romans 7, he talks about a present struggle. He says, I keep doing the things that I don't wanna do. And I'm not doing the things I know I'm supposed to do. And Paul reaches this point at the end of Romans 7 where he just says, wretched man that I am. You're in a really deep spot when you say, I'm wretched. But maybe you've felt that before where you just look at yourself and you say, man, I am just messed up. But the problem is, is if you stop there, the gospel's not good. We have to keep reading what Paul says. In verse 25, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. If Jesus paid for your sins, you have no guilt, no shame. And only Jesus offers that because he offered himself. He doesn't offer a list of options for you to do better. Imagine that you're in a burning house. Every other religion or worldview stands on the outside and tells you, gives you directions on the best way to get out of the house. One says, well, you need to take the stairs down. And they says, no, 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 there's a fire down there. So you need to go out the window. No, no, you need to try to find your way to the roof. All these different options tell you ways to get out. But Jesus is the only one who ran into the house and rescued you. That is incredible grace. Richard Koken says, for God to provide such a sacrifice for our sins is amazing grace. For God to become such a sacrifice for, your, for our sins is grace beyond our comprehension. What would change if you believed you were truly forgiven of your sin? I think we'd stop trying to prove ourselves. I think we'd stop pretending that we're better than we are. I think we'd stop living constantly on edge because that guilt that we feel would be washed away. But we're also redeemed for something else. We're redeemed for, for the invitation into something bigger than us. In verse nine, it says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now that word mystery would have piqued the ears of the Ephesians. They're, they're reading this letter and they loved mystery. There was a, it was a, it was an occult uh, community. They, they had you know, uh, temple worship. And so anything that had to do with mystery was really intriguing because they were constantly looking for the meaning of life. And it's almost like Paul's saying, do you know what true meaning is? True meaning is found in this. The true point to life is this, that everything culminates in who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's no different for us that what we've been invited into is that maybe what we're looking for in our job and maybe what we're looking for in other people and maybe what we're looking for in our desires is ultimately found and satisfied in Christ. And we also see that there's a purpose for God, I mean, God's purpose for us and for the world that are found in him as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That word fullness, is the, it means culmination. It means everything is brought together and finds their meaning in this one singular event. That all human history is pointing towards what Jesus would do on the cross and that that would make sense of the world that we live in. Uniting all things together, that all things would be made right in Christ. Now, every one of us believes a dominant story about the world. Every one of us believes that there, we have a story that, that forms the world we live in. And, and it actually forms how we live, believing that story. So every single person is answering these four questions. How is the world supposed to be? We have this idea of creation. What was the world supposed to be like? 
What's wrong with the world? We all know something's wrong with the world, right? We all, something's messed up here. We have an idea of how it needs to be fixed and then what a better world would look like. And we're all telling that story in some form or fashion. What's being said here is that there is only one story that's true. There's only one story that's truly beautiful. There's only one story that is truly good and it's that Jesus came to make all things right. That Jesus in conquering death and evil through the cross is uniting all things in heaven and earth to himself. That Jesus would be the point of all creation and that he would receive glory. So the world we live in is broken and chaotic and Jesus came to make that right. And what he does in making the world right is he first makes us right. He starts with his people. And so the church is a group of people who've been called out of darkness into God's light, who've been saved and redeemed by him, a people who have understood forgiveness. And now we get to live as a glimpse of the fact that Jesus is a good king to the world around us. What what are you living for? What's the purpose that you've been called into? And for us as Christians, it's to extend the gospel to our friends and neighbors. So what does redemption mean for you as as we close? If you're a follower of Jesus, you are currently redeemed. It says in verse seven, you have redemption. We have redemption. Not you will get redemption, not you'll get it if you do better. You are redeemed, meaning right now you stand in the forgiveness of Jesus. And you have nothing to prove, nothing to live up to, no one to impress. But yet if you've not done this, I want you to understand that Jesus died for you that he paid for your sin. But if you've not yet trusted him, you have to receive this as your own. Imagine a coupon. Like I have a coupon right now sitting in my file at my house. It was bought for us before COVID. We haven't been able to use it. We wanna go out and use it. And it's sitting in that file. And so someone paid the price in order to give that to us. So for us to be able to benefit from what they purchased for us, we have to act on it. We have to take that and we have to turn it in what was purchased would become mine. In the same way Jesus redeemed and paid for our sins and for it to to become yours, you have to act on it. You have to receive it through faith. Let's pray.